Hi, I'm Danny. I'm Lauren. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet where you can hear topics discussed. Danny, uh, would you like to introduce, introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, hello, my name is Danny, Daniel Rumberger. I am It's Danny Music on Twitter, and as far as plugs go, I do enjoy bananas. My god, I love banana bread. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm Lauren Leibowitz. I'm Lauren the Flute all over the internet. I stream on Twitch and talk a lot about things on Twitter. Um, and I guess if I plug anything, I'll be selfish and plug my band, The Returners. We do video game music. That sounds good to me. You guys ready to get into some topics? Let's do it. I think so. I'm I'm honestly really excited about this. I've uh, I listened to the early episodes when uh, the the topic bucket first uh, entered into existence. So oh, yes. <laughs> honored to be part of that myself. Likewise, this is going to be fun. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. All right, Daniel, your first topic here. If every Tetris piece has a personality, which piece would you most prefer to be stuck with on a deserted island? Right. So this is essentially a two-part question. The first part, we have to figure out what the personality of each Tetris piece is, and then what exactly, what kind of personality would you be looking for on a deserted island? So I'm going to run down my interpretation of the Tetris pieces' personalities, <laughs> and you guys feel free to disagree with me either from assumption or from personal and practical experience with said Tetris pieces. We're just going to make rude buzzer noises when you get it wrong. Is this kind of like a form of synesthesia where instead of like um, <laughs> thinking that like the, the numbers have genders or colors, you, uh, you have personalities to Tetris pieces? Uh, sure, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's hear it. The first, the first one, the most important one that everyone looks forward to anytime you're actually playing the game of Tetris is the eyepiece, also known as the line, four blocks in a row. This one is a very stable piece. It's, it does exactly what you need it to do. It comes in and is like the hero, the lifesaver, and personally I find that very uh, boring. <laughs> yeah, that piece has got to be full of himself. And he's so phallic. Oh no. <laughs> the most tox the most toxically masculine of the Tetris pieces. Yeah. Oh man. Alright, all right, before we move on, what what's the what's this piece's Myers Briggs type? Ooh. Probably an E, I would say. That sounds right. And then uh what's the next? Sensing versus intuition? Or no. Feeling. Sensing versus feeling. Yeah. I'm gonna say e ESTJ. ESTJ is what I'm gonna say. <laughs> I just know I think I'm an ENFP and that's like literally all I know about this. I don't know if that's like a horoscope. We can determine our compatibility with the Tetris pieces based on their Myers-Briggs. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely agree that the eyepiece has a bit of an ego because of its role in just like showing up late and then stealing the show away. Oftentimes it shows up very late and it's not there when you're really looking for it. So uh, yeah, I'm going to pass on that one. The S piece and the Z piece are kind of like the opposite. They're the problem children. They're a bit wild, a bit crazy, and a bit too headstrong. I also think that they would make poor deserted island uh, companions because you don't want pieces that you can't really guarantee what they do. They don't necessarily fit into all the right places, and then uh, you just make a mess anywhere when you're trying to do such important things as eat coconuts and build a, build a shelter and stay alive, that kind of thing. 
I don't like those guys. I, I'm terrible at Tetris, so I'm like biased against anything that's difficult related to Tetris because I need all the help I can get. So those <laughs> guys are not my friends, I'll be honest. <laughs> well, do you think they're fraternal twins? Well, they can't be identical because identical would mean that they were actually identical. They're right. They're like the Tetris equivalents of the Sweet Life in Zack and Cody, where I think originally <laughs> one of them was supposed to be nice and well-behaved and the other one was not, but eventually they decided, forget that, they're all going to be ill-behaved. I know. I feel like they'd be the sort of twins that aren't actually identical, but they get mistaken for being identical. That might be my bias. My sister and I are three years apart and people think we are identical twins, so that's... It sounds irritating. Do you, do you address the same... Well, the thing is, she's a cosplayer, and I'm in a video game band, so I sometimes cosplay. Oh, yeah, you're the same person. Well, the, the fun thing is actually that some of her friends um, in the past have gotten confused about how she was in a photo twice. <laughs> I don't even know where that question came from, but, you know, apparently <laughs> we I'm just secretly warping space-time instead of my own person. I'm her space-time warping alter ego you should get her to sub in for you on the second half of the podcast oh my god i don't know if you want that <laughs> <laughs> she's the evil twin okay all right and then uh the other tetris pieces we have the o piece the o piece is kind of like a i i see it as kind of a motherly figure um very older nurturing it'll fit into the places where it fits in and then um, it has limited ability to grow. It's not very progressive because if it doesn't fit on the board, then there's like... Yeah, it's finicky. It's my Tetris nightmare. And then to conclude this, I'm going to leave it with what I would actually prefer to be stuck with on a just deserted island, which are... There's the L piece and then it's reversible twin, the J piece. Personally, I would prefer the J because it's my middle initial. It's the first letter of my favorite Pokemon's name, but... These two, they have like the property of a line where they can fit just about anywhere without too much of an issue, but they also have a bit of a fun side to them and they show up more often than the line is. So they don't quite have as much of a sense of entitlement and yet they will still be able to help you complete the goal of, in this case, either getting off the island or just on the island as possible. Right. So I, I have a question here because you're talking about them showing up more often than the line is... Is, is it not pure randomization with Tetris? Oh, I, I know uh, there's, a, there's a document that I have found on the internet that goes into detail about the, rent, the piece selection algorithm in every, every version of Tetris. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. I, oh my gosh. <laughs> my mind is blown. I believe it uh, is, they, they do try to uh, keep it even, keep all the different pieces um, showing up evenly. There is a version, I think, that intentionally picks the piece that's worst for you. I've heard. This might be apoc apocryphal. I wrote one of those when I was 20 or so. That has a lot of S and Z pieces, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've seen, I've also since then seen like two other versions that it's apparently a very uh, common idea. Uh, did you uh, discuss the T piece? No. Yeah, no, I was going to say you left my favorite out, Danny. I did forget the T-piece, that's right. So the T-piece would be like a little a little kid. It's essentially the stem cell of Tetris pieces. 
because it can fit into a whole bunch of like different nooks and crannies but it's not particularly good at any one it's very flexible and very malleable especially if you play the tetris 99 there's a whole thing about t-spins and they create garbage and you can't do t-spins with any piece other than and the other than the t yeah it's so it's super malleable and super flexible and has a lot of potential i don't think it's necessarily realized that potential so i'll stick with my j (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely into the T. It's it's humble, but useful in many circumstances. I think it would be good at opening a coconut because it kind of looks like a bottle opener. <laughs> <laughs> and you, like- can, you can sit on it like a chair when you get tired. Or use it as a table. Yeah. Hammer things with it. It seems like you'd have like a good handhold there, like kind of like a, a Minecraft mining tool. Yeah, I, I bet the T shape makes something important in Minecraft in the crafting window. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to go with you on the T shape, too, um, if only because I'm phenomenally bad at Tetris. Like, watching me and a friend in college play Tetris was a spectator sport for the rest of our friends because <laughs> we were oh, so bad. They were like, there's no way you can be doing this accidentally. This has to be intentional. No. It's my my horrible weakness. And so naturally, the T piece being incredibly versatile has saved me many times. Um, So just like for like positive associations, regardless of its personality, I would just we've bonded. We've trauma bonded. The T is having just as bad a time as you are. Probably. (laughs) Well, it's desperately trying to make things better because it's the piece that makes things better. And it's like, oh, no, you're a distressed Lauren. Let me assist. And then I'm like, oh, no, I don't know where to put you. Oh, we lost. So (laughs) tragedy, tragedy. I used to be irrationally mad at the T piece because the very first Tetris game that I have, which was Deluxe on the Game Boy, for whatever reason, it never occurred to me that you can actually rotate the pieces. Oh, wow. Oh, no. All of the T pieces were just like point down. And I was somehow able to clear like one or two lines just about every time that I played. But I got so mad at the T piece because it would just mess up everything. (laughs) Okay, so you have like this like deep seated dislike going way back, just like I have this deep seated like of it going way back. Yeah, Yeah, Mm. the T is for trauma, Mm. (laughs) even though it was really my own fault for being like for not knowing to press one of the only two buttons that are available on the game. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the things I I like about, especially about like such a small controller is that the video game turns children into little scientists where they have to (laughs) try out each button to find out what it does. I didn't know that you could run in the original Mario Brothers until like five years ago. And that's an unintuitive thing. Like almost no (laughs) game has an adverb button almost always the controls you um you you have available to you are all verbs that's actually a really good way of putting it thinking about that and and i think things things being like responsive in kind of a, a delicate way to uh to an i guess a six-year-old who's never held a game controller before was pretty unintuitive yeah i could easily see somebody sitting down with super mario brothers and like the first thing you do is try pushing every button and see what it does. And B doesn't do anything unless you're moving. Mm-hmm. So I, I never got past that that pit in World 1-1. Wow. Yeah. Well, if you discovered the uh, the pipe that you can take, then it'll take you right to the end of the level and you can skip the pit. And then you die immediately in World Level 2 where there's a similar pit. 
Wait, you can wait. You can skip that very very first pit. I believe so. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. That the, the the pipe right before it. If you yeah. if you enter the pipe, uh, which is a weird secret that is way harder to discover than running in that game. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the fundamentals of the game. Right. Wow. Because like 10, 10% of the pipes actually work. Right. Oh my god. Okay. My mind is blown. I might actually attempt that. I don't know if I will. Like. Speaking of like early childhood game dramatic experiences, Mario One One, not my favorite. <laughs> not, a, not a platformer person. No, not really. It wasn't until like Metroidvanias, um, where like pits weren't instant death, that my life got better. Right. Are you guys ready for another topic? Sure. Sure. Let's do it. Uh, Lauren, your topic is. The sense of smell is mostly most closely tied to memory. Are there any really strong associations you have? The uh, ironic thing here is that when I wrote that topic out, some scent triggered a memory. And now I can't remember what the scent or the memory was. Um, but that's what inspired me to put this down. But honestly, um, seriously, I think as, as cliche as it may be, like the smell of cinnamon always takes me back to like my childhood and the holidays and it remains one of my favorite spices and I cook a lot and I never cooked and never baked until I was in my 20s so it wasn't like the act of cooking or baking with cinnamon it was just like the presence of I guess my mom baking with it I don't know right I feel like holiday smells must be really 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 kind of universally some of the strongest uh, smell memory connections, just because if you go to buy candles, um, you can buy, you know, vanilla and like mountain breeze or whatever. But a lot of them will be cinnamon, you know, apple spice, I guess, pumpkin spice, things that people think of the holidays. And I kind of wonder why that is. Yeah, so. that's interesting. There's also... Um, like my mom's perfume when I was a kid, I feel like that's kind of gone out of fashion. Having your signature scent, I think as people become more aware of sensitivities to things like that, um, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. But I think with my mom's generation and earlier, it was kind of like you found the the perfume or the cologne that really spoke to your soul. And then you just got lots of bottles of that. And that's just what you sprayed every time you went out. Like did You wore it every day. Yeah. Or at least when you were like, like, oh, I'm going to get dressed and leave the house and be presentable. Yeah. Well, it's like how in a in a cartoon, a certain character is always dressed to the same, in the same outfit. It's your character design, except outer. Right. Yeah. I actually really like that idea. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I want an anime theme song that plays whenever I enter the room. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've known people who uh, who have I guess these days it would be a phone and back in the day it would have been like a little MP3 player um, where they had kind of a soundtrack that followed them around and there'd be like that one guy on campus who like had his one song and you knew he was coming because you heard the song because he listens to the same song over and over again I, I actually talked to the guy on campus like an ice I was cream like, why truck. are you doing this. Well, no, he was, he was like, this is my theme song. When I'm going around yeah. campus, this yeah. is the music that plays when I'm around. I, you know, I really dig that, but like, I wouldn't want to live it because I don't want to listen to the same song over and over again. I once tested how long I could listen to the bubble bobble theme. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I made it over eight hours. 
To be fair, that's about how long it takes to play Bubble Bobble all the way through if you, like, beat every level. <laughs> I think I've I've gotten pretty far, but this was just sitting at work one day because people are like, there's no way. Even you have a limit to how much Bubble Bobble you can listen to. No. No, I don't. <laughs> there's a... There's... I forget his name. Internet famous autistic kid who... One of his things was he would listen to he would listen to like a song from the Bubsy soundtrack on loop for a week, and then to change it up, he would like pitch it down by five percent. <laughs> oh no! Huh? And that would just be like, yes, this is a this is a different experience, different out of experience. It's like a little bit slower, uh, a little bit flatter. That's interesting enough to. I really want to dig into what the song sounds like at this tempo now. I mean, you really bond with the song at that point. You get to know it pretty intimately, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, you would have to. Uh, I do music composition, and there's a phrase that one of my former professors would always say that uh, when all you eat is carrots, you really notice the difference between each one. Yeah. So he actually tried that out in practice and only ate carrots and coffee. Oh, no. Only ate carrots and drank coffee for like two days, and... According to him, it was actually true. I guess when all you listen to is Bubsy and you're just so used to it, then any minute change that you make to Bubsy all of a sudden gets dramatically brought out. So I can imagine it is a really different experience. Yeah. My scent association, the one that comes to mind is that um, my first girlfriend had extremely sensitive skin, like to the point where if there was a brush fire nearby, she would like break out in poison oak rash. Oh, wow. Ooh. Uh, and so, whenever I'm at the beach, I think of her because it smells like sunscreen. I feel like sunscreen is a smell that tends to be associated with a lot of memories just because there's a lot of like really emotional experiences of going to the beach or the people that you see at the beach and that sort of thing. Same, same thing for like pool chlorine. Yeah, I'm from Texas where there's a lot of swimming and swimming pools. So, like... Chlorine and sunscreen every day. That's that's summer. <laughs> the one that I have a strong association with is uh, I used to play soccer a lot. And when you play soccer, there's a particular like mixture of sweat and grass hmm. that has a bit of a smell to it. And then sometimes when I'm walking by people and either it's a track and field that's very near where I go to school at University of Toronto and sometimes I'm going by there and I smell a bit of it and sometimes if other people are just like mowing the lawn then I can smell that uh, scent as well and it just reminds me of that uh, particular time in my life. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a store in the Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco that is kind of trying to give off a tropical forest vibe and they what one of the things they do to achieve this is that they have this i think it's a negative ion generator i'm not i'm not even sure what's mechanically happening there but like it's the same sort of smell you get like when you're near a um a river that is very um splashy <laughs> what's the word for this <laughs> Turbulent? Turbulent is good. Like there's a lot of waterfalls and it's it's not just flowing water, but it's water like hitting other water and it generates these um, particles in the air. It smells a lot like uh, ozone, except I think ozone is really bad for you, but it's a similar yeah. kind of a smell. And I thought that was interesting. 
So there's a, I work in marketing and there's like an entire um, industry sort of, of uh, producing like signature scents for companies, for businesses. Um, so that like when you walk in, you have the emotional response that they want. It's like um, uh, the smell of freshly baked cookies. Right. Yeah. Like I, th- I think they've, they've been, they've said that if you are selling your house, if you bake chocolate chip cookies shortly before people come to see your house, then they'll walk in and immediately think of home and associate your house with home because of the smell of cookies. We recently released a, a limited run boxed edition of Frog Fractions Two, and one of the things that I wanted to put in the box, but it turned out to be too expensive, was a scratch and sniff map of of the the world map. Oh my god. That'd be amazing. <laughs> I'm just like trying to imagine what those scents would be. So I, I found a website that was just like we do scratch and sniff printing and I what? looked at their list of like they had a big PDF of like here's all the smells we have. And then they also said like we can make custom smells too, but presumably that's more expensive, but it was an exhaustive list. Uh, and so I came up with like here's a smell for every room and text world. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the like every flavor jelly beans except scratch and sniff. I had no idea such a thing existed. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like almost every video game would smell horrible. Earth Earthbound proved that. <laughs> yeah, that was Earthbound's marketing campaign, right? That's like why I never played it as a kid because it was like this game stinks and then it was all stinky. <laughs> yeah, they actually di- didn't. They actually do something in a Nintendo Power issue where they did have like a. Th- there was a scratch and sniff um, card um, that, and it said, "This game stinks." And I was like a very, very serious child, so I was like, "No, I don't want to play your stinky, gross game. Get that away from me." <laughs> so really, when it when it happens for Frog Factions too, you have to you have to brand it more as like a. This is the idealized smells of Frog Fractions 2, <laughs> not the actual, not the IRL smells of Frog Fractions 2. Yeah. Fairy sprinkles and cupcakes. Right, right. It's so colorful. Everything would smell like candy. <laughs> That's a good thing. Are you guys ready for another topic? I think sure. so. Uh, so my topic is convincing my son that sleep is a good thing when I don't believe it myself. Uh, this is something that I've been dealing with for most of my life is that sleep as a concept is super galling to me. Like I really uh, resent it. Likewise. That I like, this is something that like I have to do ev- like every night and then like waste a third of my life when like, what what else could I do with those eight hours in the day? Like that would be amazing to have an extra eight hours. Uh, but uh, when I try to put my son to sleep, by contrast, when my son sleeps, that's amazing. That's one of the best times in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when we like read him stories before bed, probably half the books are about the concept of going to sleep and how it's good <laughs> and natural to go to sleep and everybody should want to sleep. And I think it's working. You know, he's like, he's, he's no longer like, he's, he's super like cooperative when when we try to put him to bed and also like if we ask him if he's tired, sometimes he'll run to the stairs and start going up to his bedroom. Oh, Yeah, it's it's cute. And presumably my mom, when I was young, read me these same sorts of books about about how sleep is a good thing, but apparently it didn't take. So, is, is your fear that, that your son is going to 
uh, grow up and discover actually that sleep is a lie and terrible and dreadful on his own, despite your best efforts to the contrary? I, I am worried that he will have the same sort of teen years that I had where I was sleep deprived almost literally every day to my severe detriment. Although like I, I do, as it happens, function pretty well on little sleep, which is why I got away with it for so long probably. But it wasn't, it certainly wasn't good for me. And I don't know what kind of long-term damage I did to myself. But like just in general, um, like I'm gonna, I feel like I'm gonna have to address this. Like when you hear people talk about like, I'm not even gonna teach my children about the concept of gender, how certain activities are gendered or certain objects are gendered. And this, this is a boy book and this is a girl book. If you don't teach your kid that, they're going to learn it from other kids in school. They're going to learn it from TV mm -hmm. because they have other sources of information than you. And like, if you want to try to counteract the idea that certain activities are only for boys, you actually have to do it actively. And similarly, like my kid is certainly going to hear the idea that sleep is a waste of time and that you could do better things with your time. Like even if it doesn't, isn't actually true or it doesn't make sense, it's a compelling idea for a certain kind of mindset. And so, I feel like it's something I, I do feel obligated to address. I, I definitely agree with you about sleep. It is honestly mind-blowing that you have to spend a third of your day away from the world lying down. Um, but the feeling of being well rested yeah. is very much a separate thing. And I think it's much easier to sell that that is a good thing because if you aren't well rested and like, I've definitely done a lot of work when I wasn't real well rested before and it's awful and it just makes for a miserable experience sometimes. Yeah. So having the feeling of being well rested is a good thing. And it is something that I think you can inspire your son to try for. For me, like, I'm kind of sorry to hear that sleep is such, I mean, sleep is, is evasive. It's difficult for me to achieve. Um, but I, I don't know about you guys. I have very vivid dreams a lot of times. And I, I, I guess that's kind of uncommon to have into your like proper adulthood. But I mean, I write a lot of fiction and a lot of my fiction ideas are seeds from extremely vivid dreams that I have. And so for me, when I can get to the point where I'm sleeping and dreaming vividly again, like it, it becomes something kind of to look forward to, or at least to welcome and embrace. Is that, is that not something that happens to either of you? I tend not to remember them. Yeah, same. That sounds amazing though. So I do have um, the opposite phenomenon where like, if I am in bed in the morning, I don't want to get up. So maybe what I actually hate isn't sleep, but it's the transition one way or the other. Well, if you start thinking about it, it's kind of terrifying. And I find if I allow myself to think about the process of falling asleep, I cannot fall asleep. And there's also the chance that I will fall into a, a depressive spiral instead. Yikes. Yeah, it's not good. So I try not to dwell on that. But I do think that that transition, whether it's the, the stressful wondering, am I going to fall asleep and be able to sleep enough to get up in the morning for school? Because let's face it, like getting up for school or getting up for work is kind of this like ominous, scary thing, especially when you have insomnia. Um, or if it's just kind of like wondering, how is it that the brain enters that state? Um, I don't know, it, it gets really stressful on any number of levels, just thinking about that transition. 
Yeah, that's the that's the worst part when you're trying to fall asleep and then just not succeeding in it because then you get stressed out that you're not sleeping when you should be and you know that you got you put yourself in bed early enough so that you can get well rested before the next thing that you have to do at such and such time in the morning but if you're not falling asleep when you're lying down and uh idle it can be very stressful, and there's not really anything else you can do about that. <laughs> I did read something recently that says that actually, if you just lay there and rest, you're still doing your body a favor. And I think it was truthful and not just something to like kind of make you not panic about the fact that you're not <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> I, I've also I've found this to be true in my life, even if I and a lot of the time when you think you're not sleeping, you actually are like dozing off. The brain has a has a hard time, I think, with uh, thinking that it's more on top of things than it is, including whether it's conscious or not. Right, yeah. The people who can do the whole power nap thing, all the power to them. <laughs> yeah, that sounds nice. It sounds like a good skill to have. You guys ready for another topic? Let's sure. go for it. Uh, so this is a write-in. Uh, transitioning from making art for its own sake to making it to keep a roof over your head, or vice versa. Uh I've only done the vice versa. Wait, no, I've only done this one. I've only done the transitioning to make <laughs> to make a living doing it. And it was like satisfying at the time because it's something that I like one of the things about when when you're making art while having a day job is you just don't have that much time. And if it's your only job, you can spend so much time on your art. It's really nice in that respect. But then you also like have all these constraints like, oh, suddenly like you have to pick projects that you can make money from. And if you don't feel like making art, you have to make it anyway because you're trying to live. <laughs> I do find myself like I, I, I love doing what I do, but also I do kind of reminisce about what it was like to do games purely as a hobby because like there were a lot of really nice things about that a really nice just any of the minutiae of running a small business like whenever i have to do that i'm like you know <laughs> couldn't i just be writing some code right now <laughs> i can definitely relate to making the transition um before recently i worked in an office job that was very much nine to five well Allegedly nine to five, I actually usually had to stay later than five. Um, and it wasn't in a creative field. I would find that when I would do that, I would just come back and I'd be so burnt out that I wouldn't want to do anything creatively at all. And then after enough days of this pattern happening, then I realized that, okay, it's time to make a change. So now I'm working. I'm, I'm studying for a doctorate in music, in music, and then I hope to be able to pursue music full-time in some capacity. The The problem that I'm having now is actually with so much time to work on stuff, I'm finding that it's actually my creativity that is kind of at a cap in a way. <laughs> it gets to a certain point in the day where I get stalled on certain projects or I get like stressed out because something that I'm doing currently isn't as good as stuff that I have done previously. It can be it can be kind of difficult to break out of that mindset almost to the extent that I wish that there was something in a non-creative field to distract me and allow me to essentially refresh creativity. So what I have been doing to combat that is just always staying busy with different projects 
if I get stalled on one particular thing, then I move on to a different thing that is usually completely separate music in a different genre, music for a different ensemble, um, sometimes music for just myself only. And that helps because then going from one creative project to a separate creative project, let some of those skills and ideas that you're working on in the first one before you get stalled transfer over to the new thing. Yeah, it is a weird thing how specific burnout can be. Like if you're burned out on doing a certain activity, you can do, sometimes you can do another one that is seemingly very similar uh, that you just happen to not be burnt out on. And if you can keep bouncing around between tasks like that, you can save yourself from burning out. That's kind of the path that I've been trying to figure out. I'm, I'm just, I'm listening and I'm kind of thinking through this because this is like, this transition is something that I'm attempting to navigate. Like, I feel like, um, so I do, yeah, I do, same here. <laughs> I do writing, I do music, I do art. And I feel like the, the most creative output I ever had was actually at one point when I had a day, day job, because having constraints that you have to work around seems to inspire creativity for some reason. And I, I think it's kind of the same thing as when you create something and there are constraints on the creation, somehow you frequently wind up making better work than if you just had everything without any limitations, just all the freedom in the world. There's kind of this like panicked, what do I do? Whereas having constraints kind of forces you to make decisions by taking some possibilities away from you. I think something kind of similar can happen if you're if your time is constrained somehow. Yes. I definitely believe in creativity through limitations. Yeah, I've I've found that to be helpful for me as well. Oftentimes as well, having deadlines or setting deadlines for yourself can be very inspiring to work through because having a deadline is essentially a limitation. It's you're limiting yourself based on time, not necessarily based on a certain creative parameter. So as a result, when you're working within a time limit, it can be a very stressful experience. But at the same time, you get into the zone where you just have to go and you don't necessarily second guess every decision that you make because at the end of the day, you're just trying to put something else out there. But even without deadlines, there's just something about the experience of having a, a shorter amount of your life to put into creative works that I don't know if it's because your brain is like, well, you know, I've only got so much time, I might as well make the most of it or what. But like, I know, um, for me, uh, kind of 25 hours of day job equivalent work uh, seems to be the sweet spot for then getting a lot of creative work done. I'm kind of in a tricky point right now where I'm still kind of I'm a full time freelancer. Um, and I'm kind of sorting out I'm hitting the point now where I can turn down some projects, which is an incredible position to be in after two years. Um, Congratulations. Th thank you. Thank you. There have been some hungry months along the way. And I'm sure those aren't over yet. But, uh, but it feels good. Um, and for me, it's been kind of interesting trying to figure out, you know, how do I slot what I consider like my kind of self-indulgent creative work? I don't know that I'm going to write enough fiction, for example, to be able to consider that part of my income instead of just a thing that I do for fun. Um, whereas most of my other hobbies, I, I try to monetize. I think that's the curse of the millennial life kind of trying to figure out, okay, if I want to do music, if I want to do art, does this count as work? Does this count as creativity? Um, is this is this day job as, as a freelancer? Um, it, it, it gets for me kind of blurry. And I, I think I've had some time that I've kind of tapped myself out creatively doing my 
passionate. I love this day job type work um, and therefore don't have the creativity to put into the passionate. I love it. And it's only for me creative work. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud about this, but this is a question I've been trying to solve is, you know, how do I have enough creativity left over to make work that doesn't need to be consumed by other people when I find creating work for other people also fulfilling. Like I love the work that I do. Like I do a lot of marketing and branding strategy and stuff. And it turns out I love strategy. So that's really exciting and cool. But I also want to write fiction. But at the end of the day, if I'm doing this other stuff that I think is exciting and it pays the bills... I haven't been able to really write fiction consistently in a while. So I don't have an answer to this yet. I'm still trying to make sense of it. Yeah. The idea of having an audience kind of puts you in a mindset where it's, you kind of feel obligated to serve that audience with every creative work that you make. But one of my favorite things I've made is uh, I made a small game for my wife one Christmas and the audience, like more people than her played it, but the audience was really just her. And it was extremely fulfilling. Something that I think almost anybody can at least understand. Like if you, I, I get a very similar feeling just from like making dinner. You know, that's a, that's a creative work with an audience of, you know, two or three people maybe. And can also be extremely fulfilling if you're making those people happy. I love baking like it's one of my big hobbies because it it feels like creating and i think i i think this is something that probably all three of us have in common where like the act of creation of creating art of some sort is like it's one of my favorite things in the entire world and so baking lets me have some of that rush without having to be kind of like crafted out of my own essence which like you know writing and art and music and that sort of thing does like it's like you're like reaching into your soul and using that as the structure as the as the material for creation baking like i mean i'm using like you know butter and sugar which is much less high stakes and you're following a recipe i don't actually <laughs> oh wow okay that's that's serious my I, my party trick is I call it found cake. Um, and so like with like the, the permission of my host, I will go into your kitchen and I will bake a thing without a recipe. Um, and if it's a poorly stocked kitchen, like the time that I cooked in a, a paleo kitchen, <laughs> that's the challenge. If you actually are prepared for a baker to come into your kitchen, then you're allowed to assign me a challenge ingredient. Um, to incorporate into the mystery thing that I'm about to make, um, which is really fun. And it actually, um, you, you get like a bit of an audience doing it. It's, it's, I enjoy it. What can I say? I do enjoy having an audience. That's actually genuinely impressive to me. All the advice you hear as like, a, if you're starting out trying to bake things is that you want to follow the recipe because the proportions really matter a lot. When you're starting out, it's really important. I've baked a lot. And um, I, so I'm a perfectionist and I want to get everything right. And so baking without a recipe is my way of forcing myself to accept that sometimes a thing isn't going to turn out. It may very well not because I have a pretty decent sense by now of how things should look or feel together and roughly how much of whatever um, goes into the thing to create a good product. But it might go wrong and there's always that kind of chaos element. And that's actually really good for me. <laughs> so... Yeah. Like I baked um, a cherry brownie thing um, actually yesterday and it kind of failed. So I made some pudding and whipped cream and turned it into a trifle, which is much better. 
Because it turns out you can make mistakes and the world doesn't end, which is very, very hard for a perfectionist to internalize. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, baking personal growth. And you can take something that you've already made and think of a way to improve upon it. That story also illustrates that concept. Yeah, that's very cool. It's it's fun. Well, hey, if we're ever in the same place, I will bake you a thing. Um, I love doing it. Um, but it, it gives me some of the satisfy satisfaction of creation, which is kind of dangerous because like when you hit that point in a creative project where things are hard, which always happens, it's so tempting to just go bake and it's low stakes and everyone loves your baked goods, but nobody's going to read your novel, you know. <laughs> Each person has to read a sentence before they can have their cookie. <laughs> Oh my god! I, that's that's clear. This is what I need the to bake do. and switch. Oh no, 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 Danny! <laughs> I'm actually impressed. I think that's the the first and only pun you've made so far tonight. <laughs> oh man, I'm off my game then. <laughs> that's good. You gotta get him right at the end with one perfect pun. We'll make a pun cake for you. Now, this guy doesn't usually do puns, but that one pun was really good, huh? Are you guys ready for another topic? Let's reach yeah. into that topic bucket. Let's go. All right. I'm pulling one out. Uh, Laura, and your topic, why is a raven like a writing desk? There are actual reasons. Oh, so tell us, tell us these reasons because I put this question in here because I'm very curious <laughs> what you're talking about. So, okay. Am I, allowed to, am I allowed to swear here? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, I was a total smartass as a child and it's debatable oh, how much I've grown really up. Oh, that's not really a swear. Come on. <laughs> Smart Alec. <laughs> oh, Smart Alec. There you go. Okay. Uh, you know, I love, by the way, slight tangent, I love when people have really creative non-swears. Like, one of my friends used to work with elementary schoolers, and she would go, oh, for the love of cake. <laughs> Just, <laughs> it's like an art form. It brings me joy. But yeah, no, as a smart-ass little Lauren, I was like, this is so easy, guys. <laughs> Both Raven... And writing, start with an R sound. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and I was so inordinately proud of myself. Um, but I did actually write, I don't have it anymore, but I did actually write for fun a sort of mini essay because I think we were assigned something about compare contrast papers in middle school. And that was a joke that the teacher said. And I was like, you know, I am nothing if not overly serious and dedicated to proving that things can be done. So allow <laughs> me to write an actual essay about your joke topic. Uh, my teachers loved me. So is your prototypical writing desk black? It could be. Okay. So when I visualize a writing desk in my head with no other connotation other than just writing desk... Um, the picture that comes to mind right away is black, and uh, ravens are also black, so... <laughs> That's true. It's interesting. That's my first most apparent uh, comparison. My desk is actually black right now, but when I think of desks, maybe because this question was, for me, something from, you know, grade school, um, I picture those, like, the desks with the, like, fake particle board tops and the cubbies underneath, where you're, like... Yeah, yeah deskmate forgets about her banana all semester <laughs> and everyone is sad i may or may not have been that classmate at one point <laughs> oh no i had a classmate who like at the end of the semester when she went through her cubby i think she found 11 socks oh 
Uh, best number, but not a very ideal number to have <laughs> socks for parody's sake. <laughs> it's, we were all concerned about where the missing, the missing mismatched sock went. God, I don't know. Like, I mean, seriously, though, if we, if we, if we think about it, I mean, writing desks usually have something that originally came from a tree. So organic matter and a raven is organic. Uh-huh. Um, and... And ravens go in trees, and wood was part of a tree. Uh, you can you can write with a feather. You can. Oh, that's excellent! Write with a favorite feather on a writing desk. Mm. See, you just have to be willing to really stretch your arguments, and then it works. I bet that <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe liked both of them very much, and goths goths do too. I think tend to enjoy words and writing them. Okay, okay. Now let's come up with ways that a raven is different from a writing desk. <laughs> well, theoretically, your raven has been alive at some point and may even still be. I have yet to meet an animate writing desk. I'm trying to think if there was one in the Brave Little Toaster. <laughs> the desk might be made out of trees, though. That's that's true. That does contradict. Yeah, this is hard. <laughs> There's... They're so similar. Okay. They both have legs, but they have different numbers of legs. Oh, there you go. Yep. The writing desk probably only has a couple of tw- of quills. That would be an awful lot of feather, mm-hmm. like quill pens, to be the number of feathers that a raven has. Writing desks don't lay eggs to reproduce. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> writing desks don't usually have wings. They have legs, but they don't have wings. A writing desk you could lean against or you could sit on. A raven, you probably could do neither of those things. It could lean upon or sit on you, though. That is true. It could sit upon you. Even a Baltimore raven, uh, like the football player, could (laughs) lean upon or sit upon you. I would be very sad. Guys, I think we've nailed this topic to the wall. Like, good job. (laughs) We've really figured this out. I feel like I've contributed to the development of humanity here. Thank you. (laughs) For addressing this very important question. This segment of this podcast is going to be used in training an AI about real world objects. (laughs) They're going to make a neural network. (laughs) A deep fake of raven writing tusks. (laughs) And then they'll just like progressively get a series of images that and then have to categorize them, whether they're ravens or writing desks. And eventually it'll get to the point where we'll have created the perfect image that is exactly halfway between a raven and a writing desk. <laughs> oh, that's horrifying. <laughs> a writing raven. Uh, Are you guys ready for another topic? I think so. Let's do it. Uh, Daniel, your topic here is, in the last week, what is the best thing you have seen, done, or eaten? I'm going to pose this one to you guys first. Oh, no. You can't do that. Can he do that? Is that allowed? I mean, we he can do it, but we can just throw it back in his face and say, no, you. <laughs> <laughs> you it, it does say and or. You can choose only one if you want. I'm going to I'm gonna just going to go ahead and say the laughter of a child. Aww. Aww. Wait, was that something that you've seen or something that you've done or something that you've eaten? <laughs> Depends on if he has synesthesia. <laughs> I, I consumed it in some form or another. Uh, my my kid's been sick, and so like today he's just oh, finally recovered. Oh. Um, and it was just really good to see him in a good mood all day. That's good that he's on the way to recovery. Yeah, 
they say like the 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 one good thing about bad times is that they make you appreciate the good times. So Right. Yeah. Really appreciate that smile, that laugh. I was just reading a study that um families without children have like three to four days where there's a virus in the household. Or the three to four weeks a year, rather, where they have there's a virus in the household, but kids with a child it jumps up to like twenty weeks a year. <laughs> oh my gosh! And then with two children, it's like over half the year. Oh no! So I'll believe it. I I don't have kids, but I did in college work at a place, a bounce house birthday party place. Oh yeah, that's gonna do it. Yeah, I've never been sick so often in my life. Apparently, um, it's a thing for school teachers to just get super immunity to that sort of like all sorts of viral diseases. Like they get sick a lot for the first couple of years, but then they stop getting sick because they're just incredible superhumans. Until they get hit by a super bug, which unfortunately is a thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, Also, I had a really good yellow curry today. Ooh. Awesome. God, I love curries. I love them so much. That's going to be in my eaten as well. I had a a sog roti. You just ate the roti by itself? No. So the thing is um, that, sorry, I'm jumping in on this because I'm very excited. So Danny and I both live in Toronto. Neither one of us is from Toronto. Um, I have moved here more recently than him. And Indian food is one of my favorite cuisines. And I discovered... Curry here is usually served wrapped in a roti, so it has the curry Mm -hmm. inside the bread and you cut into it, um, which actually is specifically to Toronto. Apparently, roti with, um, or something equivalent with, uh, like, Caribbean-style curries is is common, and then an Indian chef in Toronto was like, what if I did that with my curry? And it was a really good idea, so they're delicious. It's absolutely delicious. <laughs> that's what that's what Danny's talking about. Because I realize without the context, it sounds like he's just eating the bread, but he actually is eating bread wrapped around the most delicious curry. So good. So is it is it like a samosa? It's 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 more like a burrito, but flat. Okay, that so that sounds great. It's really good. I have no objections except that I don't have one right now. <laughs> I'm going to say that the best thing that I've seen this previous week is the return of the stray cat that hides underneath the um, law school building, which is adjacent to the music building. I hadn't seen it in a really long time. And the first time that I saw it, it was this like large orange cat and it was very much a stray and had a bit of an attitude and a bit of a sass and it would just go through a hole that was... Uh, in the bottom of the building and is pr- presumably that's where the cat just lives. So then I saw this happen like last year and then I didn't see the cat at all until just a couple days ago <laughs> when just- it was still walking around. It still looked relatively fat and um, still had the exact same amount of orange coated swagger. <laughs> Does the cat have a name? Have you named this cat? I have not named the cat. Okay. Um, Would you like to name the cat? I'm really bad at naming things, so I will bounce that one back to you, but... Fanta. I have a stuffed cat named Purple Face, and you'll never guess what the only part of the cat that isn't purple is. 
the front paw. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, no, Purple Face's face isn't purple, but the rest of him is. Purple people eater. It's it's really it's really like purple comma face. A purple cat also with, with the, the face. face. Right? That's fair. <laughs> As I was driving home today, there were just a couple of deer in the road, like in front of our house. And deer, like deer in this neighborhood, are very lost. Like it's extremely it's extremely the suburbs, and there is like a park at the top of the hill, but it's not really wilderness. So they're just they don't know where they are. And I was like, I got to turn into the driveway. And they were just like, okay, we'll go onto the sidewalk in front of the driveway. <laughs> and I kept inching closer. And eventually, they like bolted into our backyard. So, like, I guess that's probably the closest thing to a wilderness that there is in this neighborhood. <laughs> oh. <laughs> because we don't really keep it up. It's like a portal to a, to a Ghibli film in your backyard. Right. We've just got raccoons and such that show up. I live in a basement apartment and like the windows sometimes like a little trash panda will walk on by and we're like, oh, hey, friend. Aww. They're very cute. And then there's the upstairs neighbor's cat um, who is not supposed to get out, but he's really good at getting out. So <laughs> like, oh, Percy. Oh, his name is Percy. P-U-R-R. Percy. Oh, I get it. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> he, he jailbreaks constantly i'm just like does she even try to keep him in his like little safe outdoor cage because i'm not convinced but percy always comes back i guess it's to percy's advantage to always come back percy is very easily scared i'm surprised he he wanders as much as he does but every time i've seen him he's like deathly terrified oh um i'll say for the best thing that i've done this week um i'm actually gonna say something that i did earlier today i found out relatively recently through facebook (laughs) that it was a friend's birthday who's in a band that i'm in the game brass and then i realized this and i'm like oh my gosh this guy does so much for me and he is an amazing person so then i sat down and i spent a large portion of today arranging two pieces that he did he's a video game composer so i arranged two pieces that he wrote for our quintet to be able to play oh my god that all happened in the span of a day and i was working on it a lot and definitely a passion project and i'm happy that it's done and uh it meant a lot to him (laughs) yeah i can only imagine that's very cool well i will look forward to hearing that so you guys have to you guys have to record it we do. <laughs> I'm I'm also glad that the other members of the band immediately are like, we have to record this. So that's cool. <laughs> it's awesome. That's how you know you found your people. This guy does a lot for me. He's partially the reason why I am in Toronto now, because he was one of my recommendation letters for University of Toronto. So I owe a lot to him and we do a lot of good stuff together. So it's it's good to be able to do something for a friend. Well, I think it's really like um, creative people giving each other creative presents. Like they they understand kind of what went into the thing that you made for them. And so there's like this like extra level of connection and appreciation. I feel like if you if you make a song or a poem or a story or a picture for somebody who doesn't make stuff on their own, they might be like, oh, I kind of like this. But uh, I mean, they'll like the sentiment, but to give it to somebody who knows just how much of yourself you just poured into making that happen for him, like, it's extra special. There's definitely a weird dynamic in giving people your own art as a gift. I've thought about like, what if I gave people like a CD of my music for Christmas? 
and it really like felt super self-aggrandizing the idea. So I, I've never done that, you know. It, it's felt it feels like a really super self-aggrandizing idea. Like I feel like what I'm giving them at that point is like you're gonna listen to me make noise for an hour. I mean, I guess it depends if it's like just like a, a CD of stuff that you have around. But if it's like I made I made this these sounds because I love you. Yeah, it's like a kid um, giving you their drawing and you put it up on the fridge. Um, what matters is I love you and I made this and I love you and I celebrate that you made this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fair. Yeah. But I I even feel like kind of guilty even recommending things to people like things that I'm pretty sure they'll like because there's just so much to consume in the world, especially now you're kind of putting a demand on their time. So maybe this is because nobody actually reads writing. <laughs> uh, one thing, one thing I've learned, and, and and all all people I know who write fiction have this same shared experience that people will ask to read your writing and then they won't do it. Um, I actually had a boss who asked to read a bunch of my stories and then she read them all. And when she asked me about them afterwards, like I couldn't speak for like a minute and a half, which for me is a really big deal because I was just like, like it blew my mind. She'd actually. <laughs> read the stories that she'd asked for because that just doesn't happen like i've written stories for people like i've written and illustrated stories for people and they didn't read them wow yeah yeah that was not my favorite but um i feel like if people don't have the time to put into it because there are other things like they won't do the thing but offering it to them they still have the power to not engage with it if they don't need to um, I would be more concerned if you make something or give something or recommend something that your feelings might be hurt if you have the expectation that they'll consume it. But just like putting it in front of them and saying, here is a thing to be aware of. Yeah, maybe there's there's just some way of framing it that that I'm giving this to you with no expectations of you. But like, for example, um, so my mom's a piano teacher and she's not a composer, but there was this little... Um, melody that she used to play on piano a lot when I was a kid. And at one point I asked her what it came from, but you know, when I was actually an adult and she was like, you know, I, I made this up. It's not really a song. Um, and so for Mother's Day several years ago, I'm not really a composer either, but I took that little melody and crafted an entire song around it um, and recorded it on my flute and and things and played that for her. For, for and That was her Mother's Day present. And she just like sobbed. Oh, that's very cute. That's very cute. Yeah, it was. And and she also, the story that I wrote and illustrated that didn't get read by the person it was for was, was her. Um, so, <laughs> it's not that she doesn't care about the things that I make. It's just that I, I've had to kind of uh, change my expectations of what I can give as a gift and what is a fair amount of energy for me to put into something. And also consider, I mean, I guess it is important to consider more that person and what that person wants. Because it's not that my mom doesn't read, but I just know that that's not going to happen. But music is so intrinsic to to who she is that that is meeting her where she is and giving her a gift that is not just made for her but also made with her in mind. Yeah. But I've also like done covers of songs that are important to my family members and giving that to them because people will actually listen to music. Um like I did Simon and Garfunkel cover for my dad and he he doesn't understand any gifts I give him but he understood why I did that. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's about all the topics we have time for today. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. <laughs> have we have we been been knighted um, as as topic? Yeah, you're you're officially anointed. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, Laurel, if you want people to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Um, just look up Lauren the Flute on any social media of your choice, including YouTube, Twitch, Twitter. Did I say Laurel? You did. It's okay. Sorry. <laughs> Every like Laurel, Lori, Laura, Lauren, we're all used to it. We're interchangeable. <laughs> yeah. And you even talked about that when you saw there was a Laura in the topic bucket. <laughs> oh, I did. Didn't I? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, the, it's the fate of being a Lauren. As a common name can relate. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, I'm Lauren the flute because I play flute and my name is Lauren. Right. But you also, you are the flute. I am. Well, it's the thing is I actually do get people um, who come into my Twitch channel and they think they're really clever and they're like, you don't look like a flute. You look like a person. Why isn't your name Lauren the person? <laughs> These are actually three-year-olds who are figuring out the world <laughs> and they've just discovered you are not a flute. <laughs> Uh, maybe I am. Maybe I'm actually an anthropomorphized sentient flute. I'll leave you with that. <laughs> All right. That's a, that's a good place to... Oh, I guess, Danny, you also have to go. You also have to... <laughs> oh, yeah. First, tell us where people... If you if this is something you want, where can people find you on the internet? Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm Daniel Rumberger. Um, I'm Danny Music on YouTube and Twitch. I'm It's Danny Music, I-T-S, D-A-N-N-Y-M-U-S-I-C on Twitter. And I guess it is necessary to spell it because I've had people try to spell it D-A-N-I music and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Lauren, say something super profound again so we can close out the podcast on it on that note. Oh, no. See, now I've got now I've got performance anxiety. (laughs) You can only have profundity like as a as a as a naturally occurring thing. If you if you force it, then you either sound like Yoda or you just stumble over your words. Right, yeah. I'm the same way, which is why I try to push it up push this job onto other people. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.